Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today, let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Yes, we're girding our loincloths, flexing our mighty thews, and exploring the dark realms of sword and sorcery. I warn you now, I have not got the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I am closer to your Garnack in stature. Just saying. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say to that, Matt. I was going to say something about a loincloth, but it didn't feel appropriate. Make a sand check in either case. Yeah. <laughs> when you say you haven't got the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger, is this you establishing an alibi in case anyone checks under your floorboards? You may say that, but I couldn't possibly comment. Anyway, before we get into all that blood-drenched stuff, what is going on? Well, I see we have another convention coming up, a weekend with the good friends, an online convention taking place 20th to the 22nd of August 2021 on our Discord server. GM signups take place between the 31st of July and the 5th of August. So you've still got a little bit of time left if you get on there quick. (laughs) If you're listening to this episode the day it's released, that is. (laughs) Yeah. If you have a look through those games and you want to sign up as a player, the deadline for that is the 13th of August. Based on our previous conventions, sorry, I say our previous conventions, based on the previous conventions that our lovely listeners have organised in our names, there will be plenty of pickup games throughout the convention as well. So if you do miss the sign-ups for either GMs or players, do still get involved, and there are spontaneous games happening the whole time throughout the weekend. And and also, just in general, on our server, the convention never really ends. Yeah, I mean, the Discord server is very popular, Scott, right? Man, how many people have we got on it now? At the moment, we've got about 1,200 people on the Discord server, and... There are an awful lot of games that are organised there. We've got a, a very active community. We have a number of very talented people who do story reading, sometimes stories they've written themselves, sometimes classic works of weird fictional ghost stories or so on. And it's a really lively, fantastic community. I'm constantly delighted by it. If you want to find out more, we'll have links in the show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, sword and sorcery. So what is sword and sorcery, and why are we discussing it on The Good Friends? Is it all just Arnie and a loincloth, or is there more to the genre? And what can it inspire in our other, maybe non-sword and sorcery gaming? That is a good question, because this is a genre that I have not really had much exposure to, apart from Arnie. (laughs) So I, I will probably be asking a number of questions throughout this. Well, I think one of the main reasons we're discussing it on the podcast is that some of our listeners asked us to, that it's something that's come up fairly regularly when we've we've gone out to people and said, what should we talk about? I think the reason it's of interest to so many of our listeners is that it all has its roots in the same soil as the Cthulhu mythos. It all erupted out of weird tales and the other pulps at the time. It was the same people writing them. So it's very similar kind of stuff. So I put a post out on Twitter to ask, can you define 
what sword and sorcery is to you. In one tweet, <laughs> the Frankenstein podcast gave a good response with the concise answer of no, <laughs> which think, is probably yeah. the most honest answer. But Judd Carlman ah. piped up and uh, said it's action-packed fantasy that is only concerned with history and lore in so much as it adds atmosphere to the protagonist's adventurous exploits, chronological order and a big overarching plot are tossed to the side in lieu of weirdness and mayhem of the story on the page right now. Hmm. And that right now, I think, you know, talking to another friend and asking them, you know, what, how would you define it? I think that element of happening now yeah. is, is a key aspect that I'll come back to. Well, it's not just the happening now, but there's a sense of urgency and immediacy, as you mentioned, but certainly urgency and action to sword and sorcery that I think is not there in larger scale fantasy. And mm. I think this is one of the reasons why I've never really warmed as much as you have, Paul, to say Tolkien, because... The fantasy that I read mostly in my formative years was a lot of the writers that we're going to talk about in this episode, Michael Moorcock, Clark Ashton Smith, and particularly Robert E. Howard. Having been exposed to that kind of fantasy, ever since then, any time I've tried to get into more epic fantasy, high fantasy, it's always felt very plodding to me. And... It's not something I can connect with in the same way. I'm just there wanting something to happen now. So too much talking about a blade of grass when you want people's heads to roll. This seems curious to me, Scott, because, um, you know, everybody's got their own tastes, so I'm not, not questioning that. But when we've talked about films, you've really liked ones with a slow burn. Yeah, I, I think it is just simply because that's how my tastes in fantasy were formed. Hmm. I remember a few years back reading Robin Hobbs's Assassin trilogy because a friend of mine really liked them and gave me his set of the books and said, yeah, you'll really get on with these. And I read them and I thought, yeah, it's okay. But I mean, each one of these books is like five, 600 pages long. There's a trilogy of them and more happens in a 40 page Conan story than happens in 1800 pages of this. I just feel like life's too short. A couple of other responses Ian Scanlon on Twitter said he summed it up in a few words, which I thought was quite neat. So it's Thews, T-H-E-W-S, Thews in brackets mighty versus brains in brackets flighty. <laughs> <laughs> which is I would not necessarily agree with that one because, yes, in a lot of cases, you do have this cold steel versus sorcery aspect which i think is very much there in robert e howard but okay let's get into this a little bit then there has been a lot of bad sword and sorcery that has been put on film particularly in comics and and books particularly from the 60s 70s 80s onwards there was a time where there was a lot of stuff that was being made by people who had absorbed the tropes of the Conan stories secondhand and had seen them through the filter of editors and, and writers like Lynn Carter and Els Bragdekamp, who had 
taken a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff and made it their own, added additional stuff to it, written their own versions of, of these books. And there were other people who in turn were reading those and then doing their knockoffs. And suddenly you had all these stories that were filled with mindless barbarian thugs in loincloths and going around clobbering people. If you read a lot of the original Sword and Sorcery, including Robert E. Howard, that's not really what it is. Sure, I mean, there, there is a lot of violence in there, and Conan, the archetypal sword and sorcery hero, is a barbarian. But he solves most of his problems with wits and cunning and cleverness rather than just brute strength. That is something that I'd say has been lost since then. So when you're talking about thews versus brains there, I'd say that that is a dichotomy that has come about in the later works that is very much not there in in the, the source. Yeah, I think it's pithy and uh, quite humorous. I don't think it's necessarily accurate. Ron Edwards, in his book Sorcerer and Sword, he views Conan as both a sword-wielding barbarian and a sorcerer on account that he does some, you know, he works some rituals sometimes and so on. I can't quite put my finger on when, but, you know, he put forward the argument that Conan embodies both, which surprised me. Um, but certainly it's not necessarily, you know, man against magic. But it is mostly, I think, in Sword and Sorcery, in the original stuff. I think to pin down what Sword and Sorcery is, I mean, for a start, I mean, you, you have to realise that the term didn't really come about until the 1960s. I didn't realise until I was doing a bit of reading in preparation for this episode that it was a term that was actually coined by Fritz Lieber. And he basically did so when Michael Moorcock asked the question, what do we call fantasy fiction that's written in the mould of Robert E. Howard? So I mean, that was very much the template for it. It was sort of, you know, here are all these classic stories, particularly the Conan stories, but also, say, the Solomon Cain, Bran McMahon, and Cull of Atlantis stories. So if we take these as the template and all the, the fiction that followed in its wake, then what do we call that? And that's what the the term was coined to sum up. Heroic fantasy is another term that I've heard used in the same breath as well. Yeah, there's certainly an overlap. But I'd argue that a lot of the great protagonists of sword and sorcery are maybe more anti-heroes than heroes. I mean, they're certainly more morally ambiguous characters. They're they often do good, but they always had their own personal agendas. I mean, Conan in the stories is a thief and a pirate and a brigand and a mercenary, and he goes out and does all these really, potentially really quite unpleasant things, but ultimately also ends up doing a lot of good at the same time. But his main goal is the acquisition of wealth and power. One of the things that I read in a few sources is that it's easier to define what sword and sorcery isn't than what it is. Mm. And one of the things that came up was you will not find a general kind of paladin-type character that goes out to do good and just things just because that's the right thing to do. No, it's what fun and profit's in for them is generally the, uh, the main thing for a lot of these characters from what I can tell. But the thing is that, I mean, for each rule like this that you come up with, you can probably find an exception. Mm. And so I'd say that if you count the Solomon Cain stories as sword and sorcery, which, I mean, potentially they are, then 
that would be very much how Solomon Cain views himself, that he is this Puritan going out to cleanse the world of evil. So I've got one final one from Twitter from Fred Keish. His first tweet just said, well, there are swords <laughs> and there are sorcerers. And then he expanded on that. For me, it's always been more of a literary feel than either swords or sorcerers. So Conan, yes. Mervyn Peak, no. The more pulpy tropes, the better. DCC, yes. Most fantasy role-playing games, yes, but on a sliding scale based on the amount of pulp. There was another parallel thing, actually thinking of the, kind of the gaming aspect there, where some reviewers that were looking at some of the early sword and sorcery collections, like those edited by Els Brangdekamp, uh, where they were saying, a lot of these feel like they could be a Dungeons & Dragons type scenario. But then on another aspect, you could argue that if it feels too much like D&D, it isn't sword and sorcery because there isn't really an emphasis on going out in the stories and slaying monsters. Yeah, it's it's tricky because if you look at Appendix N in D&D, you know, that list of influential books that Gary Gargas put together, there is a fair amount of sword and sorcery in there. I seem to remember there's all the Conan books, for example. And there certainly are elements of that in D&D, but I mean, D&D is just like a, a kitchen sink melange of, of just every fantasy trope going. And so, you know, quite happily brings in uh, Tolkien with Robert E. Howard, even though the two of them had very little in common. So it is a, a strange mishmash. Yeah, because you say, Matt, the emphasis isn't in sword and sorcery, isn't on going out and killing monsters, but then that's not really the emphasis in most other high fantasy either. It's not really, you're not really yeah. heading off down dungeons killing monsters on the whole. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think of like Lord of the Rings, yeah, I mean, yeah. they do fight some monsters, but then so does Conan, yeah? I mean, I'd say a few other things that then typify sword and sorcery. Generally, the stakes in any particular sword and sorcery story are more personal. They're smaller. This isn't epic fantasy. This isn't saving the world. Mm. This is generally something that is happening on a very human scale. And I'll talk about some exceptions to that because one of my favorite sword and sorcery series is very much the polar opposite of that. In general, the protagonists and antagonists in it are, are human. There generally aren't any intelligent non-human races the way that you'd see in D&D. But again, you can find exceptions to that. The big one, I'd say, is that magic in it is something that is unnatural. That magic is an aberration, it is an intrusion into our world, it is something that normal people, sane people, healthy people do not generally use. You don't have kind of utility magic items like you'd have in D&D, you don't have good wizards, that if someone is playing around with these forces, they're generally doing it for deeply suspect motivations and it is generally a corrupting element and i think this is the biggest parallel to call of cthulhu that magic and sword and sorcery is very much like magic in call of cthulhu and particularly in lovecraft that it is this dangerous otherworldly thing that will get people killed clark ashton smith has a particular fondness for necromancers 
in his stories. So vile things connected with death and decay and so on. So definitely uh, not your typical uh, Miracle Max <laughs> thinking of the wizard in uh, Princess Bride. Building on that, the other thing is that you don't tend to get monsters, or at least a lot of the kinds of monsters that you think about in say, Tolkienian fantasy or in D&D and stuff like that, what you do have is a generally a fairly limited subset. So you you tend to have demons or things that people have summoned from other worlds. You tend to have the undead. You have Lovecraftian horrors in there, these eldritch gods or these forgotten races of yore that left hideous secrets behind that people might uncover you're not generally going to come across elves and orcs and trolls and stuff like that. No. Well, the only thing I can remember from one of the stories I read was giant crabs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some of the monsters, particularly in the Conan stories, are things like unnaturally large animals, giant snakes, or in one case, even dinosaurs that have somehow survived. Conan does Jurassic Park. Yeah. There's a crossover I'd watch. Yeah, Ron Edwards, in his list of what it is, he sort of lists that it can be from a, a very, very removed from our, our time. So it can be distant past or distant future, but it's going to be you know distant one way or the other. Yeah. Or even another world or, or another dimension, perhaps not of Earth or, or at all, that is unconcerned with progress and it's unconcerned with the kind of personal development, really, of the main character. Yeah. And on the downside... It was a racist and judgmental time, and women have it rough. Yeah, and I want to get into a few exceptions again to that as, as we get on, because one thing that helps temper some of that is the fact that one of the original pulp writers who created Sword and Sorcery was C.R. Moore, Catherine Moore, who wrote the Girelle of Joiries stories, which I think are a nice antidote to some of the, the more sexist portrayals of the time. Hmm. That was definitely something that came up in some of the videos I'd watched, was that there was always commentary about, yeah, the uh, the covers on some of these of scantily clad females are somewhat misogynist, yeah. along with some of the content, and yeah, it's, it doesn't paint it in a great light to begin with, does it? Well, I'd say that's something that was particularly bad in the 60s and 70s, and to some extent the 80s, when you had the whole sword and sorcery film boom, where... Yeah, you did have these Boris Vallejo paintings of scantily clad women draped over mighty sword-wielding or axe-wielding barbarians, and that was the cover imagery of the time. Even if you go back to Robert E. Howard, that's not necessarily what you see in the stories. Considering when he was writing them, I think this is a discussion for another time, but I'll just touch on it now. I think that... He did better at portraying female characters than you might expect, while still being deeply mired in the sexist tropes of the time. But I think I think he tried more than people give him credit for, given when he was writing. There's also that, again, there's you know, bits and pieces that I've picked up here and there. One of the things that probably typifies the later stuff that I would be interested in diving into with Howard's early Conan stories are that there's this image of like the bronzed Adonis Arnie kind of character that constantly wades in with his sword, chops down his enemies, or as he uh, famously puts it, you know, to crush his enemies, see them driven before him, and hear the lamentations of their women. 
that he's always this kind of unstoppable machine that always wins. But that isn't necessarily the case with Howard's stuff, that he does no. lose. And I like that with the, that it's not just, oh, here we go through another slugfest of waving a sword and constantly winning and chopping down people. That No, it, it can be that there are times when he does not win. Actually, to be fair, I think that happens in the film as well a couple of times. Um, the, you know, they're taken captive and, yeah, I mean, he gets, like, nailed to the tree of woe and things like that. So, um, mm. yeah, I, I think – I'm not sure it's true that like, he always wins. But, uh, but certainly that is, a, that is a feature that, you know, that, that they don't always win. Yeah. And just going back to the structure of these stories, I think, is, is, a, is another important thing that – they're not necessarily presented chronologically. So you, you, yeah. once you start reading one of these stories, and I'm thinking here particularly of like the Conan stories typically do this very strongly. You're like, well, I always feel like I'm jumping in. Like if it was a TV series, I feel like I'm jumping into season three and seeing a random episode. Yeah. Like, like that it implies that there's loads of stuff that I haven't read yet or there's loads of stuff to come. But just with quite minimal and quite efficient use of language and description, there's a hell of a lot that's implied. So as a reader, you think, oh, you know, maybe I've missed this stuff. But no, you haven't. That's just the way the fiction works. Mm. So it, it just it gives a, that sense of immediacy and it's kind of superficial, but it gives a sense of depth. And that's kind of all you need. And particularly like when we play our games, I think that's, you know, that, that's a, a good thing to, to take away. Absolutely, yeah. And I think a big part of that, which also can apply very well to gaming, is that most of the sword and sorcery writers, and I think Robert E. Howard is a bit of an exception, only created as much of the world as they needed for that particular story. And then the action would move on to a different time or different place, and they'd create just enough around that for that story to take place in. As you say, there are hints of a, a wider world. Now, I mean, what Robert E. Howard did was he did write a 10,000-word Bible for himself, a little piece that he called The Hyborian Age which was a sort of cod history that he could use to draw elements into his Conan stories to give them verisimilitude. But even then, he, he wasn't really that constrained by it, and he didn't actually, in the stories, make that much reference to it. And the stories do feel very self-contained. And as Paul says, I mean, they they were written in completely non-chronological order. I think the first one to be published was one of the last ones chronologically in the timeline, which shows Conan as a, an aging king. And then a little while later, you've got stories like The Tower of the Elephant, which shows him as a young man. So, yeah, it's, it's just diving around, showing, yeah, as you say, just little snapshots of the world. And I think if we're running our own games our own fantasy games, our own sword and sorcery games particularly. That's a great lesson to learn. Don't sit down and write hundreds of pages of, of backstory and so on. Just, you know, use the bare minimum of what you need in order to make this particular session happen. Mm. That is one of the things I found very intimidating about Tolkien, that you have this huge series of books, The History of Middle-Earth, and think, mm. holy crap, how am I going to digest all this <laughs> this setting? Yeah, I mean, this is very much sort of nails what's the difference, I think, you know, and what we just said about how Howard's approach or the typical approach to sword and sorcery writing, I think, compared to Tolkien's approach. So Tolkien, 
you know, his his passion was uh, creating fictional languages, and you know, he created this this whole world and this whole mythology, which you know, had a consistency to it that gave a place for that lang- those languages to live and to come alive. So he was just constantly going into well striving for a sort of consistency of detail a- among all that wealth of stuff that he was creating from mm-hmm. uh, kind of, if memory serves me right, from sort of teenage years through to, to when he passed away at the age of like, I don't know, about 80 or so, 70 or 80. Um, so it was kind of a life's work, you know, that one setting. This is like one of us being a GM and having run a campaign for like 70 years, you know, <laughs> the same campaign almost. I think very much of this this whole thing as being a sliding scale with like the quintessential sort of sword and sorcery Robert E. Howard story at one end. Yeah. And then if you put Tolkien at the other end, I think there's a hell of a lot of stuff that, you know, on that sliding scale, and it's not really just a line, it's probably, you know, some kind of weird three-dimensional uh, the, the diagram. <laughs> but but you can put various things in different places. And it's like arguing about, you know, or is this music, does it, is this music rock? Is it pop music? Is it rock and roll? Is it, you know, is it metal? Is it in all these different genres? And Which one of the 500 sub-genres of metal is it? Exactly. And you know, in different bands, they're going to have an album or track that fits into that one and then a track that fits into that one. You know, you're not going to be able to categorise things. For all that, I think it is interesting to me to discuss, you know, what, why do we have this term sword and sorcery and what typifies it? And also I think another interesting aspect of sword and sorcery compared to a lot of grander fantasy is that most of it was written as short stories. Mm. So where you've got books, you either have collections of short stories or you have, I forget what the proper term is, not patchwork novels, but but something like that, where it's effectively a bunch of short stories that are drawn together into a novel. And so most of the defining works of, of sword and sorcery, so you know, we're talking about Robert E. Howard and C.R. Moore and Fritz Lieber and Michael Moorcock and Carl Edward Wagner and Charles R. Saunders, almost all of their books are made up of short stories that were published in magazines. And I think that really helps with the speed and immediacy of the, of the way these are delivered. I think so. I've yet to read a sword and sorcery novel, like a whole book that I think works well as sword and sorcery. So there's, in this process of preparing for this, I think, you know, we've all looked online and and looked at lists of sword and sorcery films, lists of sword and sorcery books and so on. You know, I'd read a selection and I was kind of looking for more. So I read uh, Joe Abercrombie's The Blade itself, which is a, a relatively recent release i think i'm not sure exactly when it came out about 10 years ago i think or maybe a bit more and it's great fantastic um and it it opens up with i mean a character who is called nine fingers he is a kind of a a wandering um i I guess you could call him a barbarian but a wandering sort of sword wielding character and it opens up with a great scene of him um i think just having been defeated by some things that are a bit like, you know, that book's version of sort of orcs or goblins. And um, him coming back to camp and, and realising that all of his friends have been killed uh, and they've all disappeared. And, and that's a great, that first chapter, absolutely, swords and sorcery all the way. It was great. Then it moves to a different character in a different part of the land who's a torturer, fantastic character, absolutely wonderful. And I'm thinking, well, now we're getting like a whole 
realm starting to be described and intrigue and like a, th- you know, a merchant's guild and and it's a big patchwork of, of stuff across this land and history and i'm thinking oh, this is this is feeling more like standard fantasy now mm. good i really enjoyed it it's fantastic but suddenly now it doesn't feel so much like i think that what we're talking about the sword and sorcery yeah i think that there's a lot of modern fantasy that has drawn upon sword and sorcery and uses elements of those like you said in you know uh, joe abercrombie there and i think one of the ones who does it more successfully is scott lynch who wrote the gentleman bastard series starting with the lies of Locke lamora which are these sort of picaresque stories about a small group of basically confidence tricksters in this fantasy world that's sort of a a medieval Europe type fantasy world, sort of 15th, 16th century Venice type setup. It does sort of have some of the world building you'd expect from a larger fantasy, but it has the merit of focusing on a very tight scope of characters and just really two main characters and it ends up feeling more i'd say like faffer than the gray mouser than the kind of thing you're talking about even if they are much bigger books and they end up being a bit more world spanning they maintain that sort of tight personal focus of sword and sorcery Mm. so i'd say that's that's probably a more successful hybrid now we've mentioned before that uh, this this genre or the subgenre, whatever you want to call it, kind of emerged from the the time of weird tales, very much like uh, Lovecraft or specifically the Cthulhu Mythos, or at least the foundations for it. One of the videos that I watched about this, uh, there's a series on what is sword and sorcery. Thought, oh, this would be a good uh, a good starting point for a layman such as myself. Examined three different books, which had very similar titles that's about as much as i remember about them but the one thing that came up that i was really surprised at that it had a list of the authors on the front cover there was lovecraft straight on the front cover mm. thinking hang on a minute i don't i wouldn't have really pegged lovecraft as being uh, sword and sorcery because they open it up and the story that they've chosen in the collection or at least else brag the camp chose in this collection was the doom that came to sarnath hmm I'm thinking, okay, that's not what I would have necessarily off the top of my head classified as sword and sorcery, but I could potentially see how some of the Dreamland stuff might be interpreted in that way. Um, the reviewer did also mention that it was their least favourite sword and sorcery <laughs> story in the collection. <laughs> so I'm kind of thinking, oh, maybe my uh, my immediate reaction of, oh, how is this sword and sorcery what, too far off the mark then? But if you've got something like The Doom That Came to Sarnoth, which I more interpreted as probably more just fantasy and I say as a dreamland story, but definitely with eerie moments in there and uh, definitely tinges of horror mm. throughout. What kind of relationship does this genre have with horror? I mean, is it something that comes up a lot in the stories and also relating that back to the likes of Lovecraft and what his stories were trying to do? I mean, I know that I read the Appendix N, a new book edited by Peter Berbergal. That's a collection of the Eldritch Roots of Dungeons & Dragons is the subtitle. But as you say, Matt, one of the stories in that, H.P. Lovecraft, The Doom That Came to Sarnath. I'm guessing there's two reasons there. One is that you know Lovecraft was around at the same time as these people. The story does have an overlap with it. And also, it's going to be in the public domain, so it's, it's an easy one to, to include. But Well, and also name recognition. H.P. Lovecraft. He's probably the biggest name of the book. Uh, maybe. 
Yeah, but I mean, where else does it occur? I mean, I was looking at a few references in Conan, actually. Yeah, there are references to altars to the old ones. There's quite a few references to the old ones, you know, as we've referenced kind of dark magic and demons and so on. So it doesn't always overlap that strongly with horror. And I'm not sure... I think it, it uses some of the tropes of horror sometimes as that sort of dark fantasy elements to it. So, you know, there, there is some overlap. I'd disagree with that. I'd say that there's a very strong overlap. When I interviewed Seskorkowski a couple of weeks back, he made the point, which is something I've said myself on other occasions, that sword and sorcery and horror are basically very often the same stories, just in different settings. The kind of weird horror we talk about on The Good Friends of Jackson Lies came out of weird tales primarily, and out of the Lovecraft circle. And so did Sword and Sorcery. It's not a coincidence that these were the same writers. So, you know, we've mentioned, obviously, Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, C.L. Moore, Henry Cutner, and uh, Fritz Lieber. And these people all wrote what we'd consider to be foundational works of weird horror, and also wrote, in a lot of cases, sword and sorcery. The same elements went into them, often the same names. So, I mean, for example, classic one, I mean, if you consider Clark Ashton Smith's work to be sword and sorcery, and I'd say it's an edge case, but I'd say there's certainly sword and sorcery elements in there, um, Mordigian, who we discussed on a recent episode, comes from a Zothique story that is, I'd say, very much sword and sorcery. Mm. Uh, Sarthogua comes from a story that you could argue is sword and sorcery. And, you know, in turn, Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard borrowed names from Lovecraft and put those in there. Fritz Lieber did the same. I don't think it ended up in the final draft, but the first draft of the first Fafford and the Grey Mouse's story, which Lieber sent to, to Lovecraft, actually made direct references to some Lovecraftian entities. And I think Lovecraft actually advised him to take those out because they didn't quite fit the tone of the story that he was writing. So these things from the outset were... Yeah, entangled. Mm. Now, you've mentioned the Charnel God, which is a particular favourite of mine. Mm. In retrospect, thinking, yeah, it could it could count as a sword and sorcery story. And I've read a few of the Zathik stories. I haven't read them all, but it's definitely, I've, I've enjoyed the ones that I've read. So you two are definitely more well-read on this genre than I am. What would you consider to be your either your favourite or even archetypal stories? The first one I'd pick, well, I mean, obviously, there are a whole bunch of Robert E. Howard stories that I could go into, but we're going to talk about Robert E. Howard in later episodes, so I'll skip over him, I think. So the first one I'll go for is Black God's Kiss by C.L. Moore. So as I mentioned, C.L. Moore was one of the original weird fiction writers. I, she was slightly younger than Lovecraft. She ended up marrying Henry Cutner, and the two of them produced a lot of work together, including uh, Mimsy of the Borrowgroves, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. But she wrote this, this short cycle of stories about this swordswoman called Girelle of Joiry in this sort of medieval French setting. Black God's Kiss is just this really weird dreamlike story in which Jarelle, her 
keep is conquered by this this man who comes into her midst and she hates him for subjugating her and her people and decides to take revenge and she remembers that there is this sort of gateway to this other world in the basement of this castle this sort of forbidden area this sort of fairyland or hell or whatever it is and just goes on a quest for a weapon she can use against this this conqueror and the depiction of the other world and her emotional reaction to it all and the way that the story plays out it does not read like a story that was written in the 1930s it has a, a far more I'd say literary tone than a lot of the sword and sorcery that came out at the time. It was just fantastic as well to read a <laughs> strong female protagonist, TM, written by a female writer at the time, rather than, say, Robert E. Howard trying his best and really not doing a great job. Yeah, no, that's a great one. I enjoyed it. It's, that is also in that same collection, Appendix N. The one that stood out to me most out of Appendix N I would say, is A Hero at the Gates by Tanith Lee. Oh, yes. Just reading through the book, there's the kind of list of names that, that you'd expect. And some of the stories just kind of didn't really interest me that much. And some of them really, you just spring off the page and come to life. And this one totally did that. You know, it's a hero that, well, a hero in inverted commas, that turns up at the city walls. Again, you kind of feel like you're there must be a history to this, but, you know, maybe there isn't. It just turns up at the city walls and, you know, there's trouble in the city and he ends up, you know, getting imprisoned and uh, tricked and, uh, and and he is a kind of a, a Conan-type figure, perhaps one, to put it in a very simple way. But it's quite a short story and it took some turns that I, I certainly didn't see coming. But it's the main thing is just the, the strength of the writing, I think. I just looked at it again today and it's like, oh, it's actually really short. It's maybe like, I can't remember, about 10 pages or something. It's, it's quite short, but just really effective. And I think that's the thing with a good sword and sorcery story is it just leaps off the page. Well, I've raved about Tanith Lee on the podcast before. She's one of my favourites. The Flat Earth Cycle that she wrote, Night's Master and Death's Master and so on. Uh, I'd say kind of sword and sorcery adjacent again that they've got this very sort of dreamy sensual atmosphere that you don't get in a lot of sword and sorcery and yeah I just love her writing any more for any more the next one I choose would be well the entire Fafford and the Grey Master series I, I love those I came to those comparatively late I mean I've read a lot of sword and sorcery in my teens but I don't think I read any Fafford and the Grey Master stories until I was about 30 I absolutely adore them. I mean, they get a bit ropey towards the end, but I mean, Fritz Lieber wrote them over the course of, I think, something like 40 years. There's one in particular that really appealed to me, which was a story called Lean Times and Lankmar. So a lot of the the Fafford and the Grey Master stories take place in this sort of sprawling, chaotic, archetypal, almost D&D city of Lankmar. So if you think of a lot of D&D city adventures, they probably had their roots in what Fritz Lieber wrote in those, those Lankmar stories. And this is... It's just a romp. You've got these two characters, these two thieves, Fafford and the Grey Mouser, who've been friends and been on misadventures for ages. One's a failed sorcerer, one's a barbarian, but they, they basically just go around and steal shit. And they've had this falling out at some stage and gone off to do their own things. And Fafford, the barbarian, finds religion and gets involved in sort of this weird cult. And it's just... 
it's just fun in a fairly atypical way for sword and sorcery that it's it's tongue-in-cheek but at the same time it's serious enough that it's got teeth and yeah i just love it i thought you were gonna say when it's like he's a barbarian he's a failed sorcerer and together they fight crime no together they do crime yeah i read one of i read well i read a few of libra's but um uh stardock um the one where they're climbing this mountain i don't remember that one i have to say there's so much description of climbing mountains Sounds like there's a reason why I don't remember that one. Yeah, it was just a bit, I don't know. I just found it a bit dull, to be honest. So a bit like climbing a mountain then? <laughs> well, I'm guessing so. I mean, I've read um, some books about Antarctic exploration and so on, and, and it felt a bit like one of those. I mean, this is one of the things I think of heard the argument that Tolkien does a lot of description, but I don't think he does. I think he gives the impression of doing it. But, you know, in, in this story, yeah, it was just sort of, constant description of mountains and mountain climbing and the specifics of how they were doing it and that's not really representative of the rest of the stories i mean most of them are far pacier than that no i mean i, I read lords of Quarmal as well yeah the one about the two of them sort of go into the underground city and there's two warring brothers and they end up kind of each backing up a different brother but they don't realize that the other one's there thinking about it in retrospect is probably Lieber parodying Robert E. Howard's Red Nails. Oh, right. Okay. Which, spoiler, we're going to talk about in a subsequent episode. So when I was about 10 or 11, I picked up a book at the school book sale. I don't know. It was like some books were sold at school for some reason. And uh, I picked it up because I like the cover. Looking back, it looks a lot like Arnie as Conan, but it was published <laughs> in 1979. So, you know, predates that. But I think, you know, age 10 or 11, as far as I can recall, I had the Star Wars books. I had a book of boys' adventures. And then I had this. And that was about all the books I think I had at home. Yeah, this, this kind of blew my mind. So this was uh, The Wizard of Lemuria by Lynn Carter. And uh, oh, yeah, wow. I loved it. It was, uh, it was great. It was this slim little book. And, you know, I think those, those, some of those things are, are things that sort of set me up for loving D&D, really, and my conception of D&D. So you've got this character whose name's escaping me, but is this kind of barbarian figure. And, uh, you know, it starts with him sort of fighting his way through the, through the city and, and getting in this kind of sky boat, this boat made of metal that repels gravity. It's like the only one of them. And he, he sails off in it on his voyage across the land and, you know, it drifts and he gets lost in forests. And yes, yeah, fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, I'm always in two minds about Lynn Carter, because he was a huge figure in fantasy and horror during the mid-20th century. And he and El Sprague de Camp did quite a lot to popularise Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and so on, or keep their legacies alive. But at the same time, a lot of what he created and a lot of what he published in various anthologies from other writers was really quite derivative and second-rate. When he was good, he was good. But, you know, as I mentioned before, he and Ellis Sprague de Camp went through and they took all these Robert E. Howard stories, the Conan stories, and rewrote them, basically, and added all their additional material and, you know, remade Conan their own image. And for a long time, those were the only editions of Conan that were available. It's, it's only about 20 years ago that you started being able to get Robert E. Howard's original version of Conan again. Mm. So, yeah, I, I find him a, like I say, a conflicting figure. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that came up in uh, Ron Edwards' article in the Sorcerer and Sword supplement for Sorcerer, was that I think it was done out of more of a a desire to harmonise everything, like to bring together all the stories and make the mm. links between them potentially a little bit more substantial in their eyes. I'm not sure it was... It didn't sound to me like they were trying to remake it in their own image, but they were almost taking the Durleth approach to sword and sorcery that, that he'd done with the mythos. They were trying to apply this overarching framework that linked it all together. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I kind of put my list together in chronological order from when they were published, and I've now reached the stage where I can talk about the series that got me into sword and sorcery in the first place, and that's Michael Moorcock's Elric books. I'd heard of Moorcock because I'd got into new wave science fiction when I was in my mid-teens, I think through reading Philip K. Dick, and I'd heard that Moorcock was one of the great figures there and started picking up whatever books of his I could whenever I encountered them, and yeah, you know, encountered the Auric books fairly early on. These just set the template for sword and sorcery for me, despite the fact they break a lot of the rules that we talked about in that they are fundamentally world-changing adventures, or at least the final part of them is. The, fi- the last book, Stormbringer, is very much an apocalyptic book. At the same time, a lot of them are much smaller scale and do that that whole personal stakes thing and just-in-time world-building and personal motivations. But what I loved about them is they're just so fucking weird. They're just bursting with imagination. There's something strange that's happening on every page. So, I mean, the protagonist is Elric the Albino. He's this sort of failed leader of the Melnobanean people, this sort of elven race of sadistic conquerors who ruled the world. And their empire is in decline, and he's a big part of it. And in the process of shoring up his position and trying not to get usurped by his cousin, he gets hold of this magical sword. He goes on a quest, finds this magical sword called Stormbringer, which is basically the worst thing he could have done, because Stormbringer is intelligent and it's malevolent. And it basically sustains him by drinking the souls of the people he kills and drives him to further acts of atrocity, killing a lot of the people he loves. And at the same time, he also has a demon lord who considers himself to be Elric's patron, this uh, this lord of chaos who is trying to encourage him in this battle between law and chaos to take the side of chaos. And it just gets stranger and stranger and stranger as it goes on. And like the Conan books, they were written completely out of order. And Stormbringer was the first one that was written. So it started with the climax and then kind of worked its way back. And Marco, I think, was still writing the occasional story 15 years ago, despite starting in the 60s. The later stories, the ones that he wrote in the, the 90s and early 2000s, I'd say are pretty missable. But before then, they, you know, they are made up largely of short stories they're short they're punchy they're weird and they just read like fever dreams they're great then alongside moorcock chronologically roughly there is a another author we've talked about on the podcast before just not in the context of sword and sorcery and that is carl edward wagner Wagner wrote a series of sword and sorcery stories in the 60s and 70s about a character called Cain who 
maybe the the Cain from the Old Testament, as in Cain and Abel, even though the spelling is different, it's K-A-N-E. But he is this, even by sword and sorcery standards, this deeply morally compromised character. I think more than any other character I can think of, he exemplifies the difference between a protagonist and a hero, in that a lot of the things he does are really quite horrible, that he is very much out for power, out for himself, serving his own ends. But what he does is also always interesting. There are a, a few Kane novels and a whole bunch of short stories of varying degrees of success. But the one that really sticks with me is a short story called Undertow, which you can find in the Nightwind's collection, which I think is one of the best sword and sorcery stories I've read. And it's very different than the Robert E. Howard model. And I think it shows the breadth of the genre because in it, I mean, Kane, despite the fact that he is the central character of all these stories, quite often appears on the periphery of them. And this is very much about a young woman, uh, a former lover of Kane, who's trying to get away from him and getting involved in relationships with other men, other stronger men she thinks she can pit against Kane and help break his grip on her. But there's some stuff about their background and about the kind of hold he Cain has over her or the kinds of things he's done for her that she just doesn't realize and it's all building towards this really horrible traumatic grim ending that I think is one of the nastiest that I've read in any fantasy story and I think very much shows how closely sword and sorcery and horror are linked and you do have a sort of Conan-type barbarian character in this, but he is very much a foil. Even though he's not front and centre, this is very much Kane's story. If you're interested in the darker, more fucked-up side of, of sword and sorcery, yeah, seek out the Kane books. I, I think they're available as e-books now and well worth it. Not the same Kane when you say spelt with a K, K-A-N-E, that you'd find in uh, Cain and Abel by Geoffrey Archer, because that would be one hell of a crossover if that was... <laughs> No, I want to see Jeffrey Archer write Sword and Sorcery. No, I don't, because I don't know <laughs> Jeffrey Archer. I mean, another one that I hadn't really read much of was Jack Vance. I really struggled with The Dying Earth. What, really? Which ones did he read? The first Dying Earth collection? Or yeah. The Kugel stories? No, then I went on. Then I, I sort of said to some friends that I haven't really got on that well with that. I don't know. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I did. it didn't really sit well with I just didn't really mesh with it very well. Mm. I tried reading it and then I tried um, listening to it on audiobook and I just, I don't know, I'd just keep skating off it. Mm. So then I went, somebody recommended Kugel Saga. This is a strange tale of, of Kugel. You know, he's this, um, you know, again, he's this, this sort of, um, I don't know what how to describe it. This kind of uh, rogue. Rogue. So kind of, yeah. Kind of uh, jack of all trades will turn his hand to, yeah. you know, all the all these various things. He's a bullshit merchant and a con artist, basically. Yeah, and it's I talked about it online, and um, somebody they use the the term picaresque, and uh, yeah, yeah, looking that word up because I wasn't one hundred percent sure what it meant. So relating to an episodic style of fiction, dealing with the adventures of a rough and dishonest but appealing hero. I mean that. Absolutely. That, that's a review of the story yeah. right there. And I'd say the Fafford and the Grey Mouse's stories are picaresques, and the Gentleman Bastard books definitely are. Right. I mean, to be honest, 
I kind of found some of the episodes quite engaging and I, and I stuck with it and, and, and got through to the end. It's just, it feels a bit whimsical. Mm. It's not gritty, but it's not comedy either. It's kind of somewhere in the middle that I know you're not big fans, but it made me think of Terry Pratchett to some degree yeah. and appreciate what a good writer Pratchett is that, you know, he takes this stuff and obviously makes it more comedic. You know, perhaps there's more to it than that, but there's certainly comedy and it's well written. I found the Kugel saga... It didn't make me want to go back and read more of it, I have to say. And there were some bits where, so he sat in a bar with this character that he's kind of in competition with for a job. And they they agree to have a, a wager. And it starts off like, which one of those two guys drinking over there will go for a pee first? And that goes on for a while. And then it's like, that, that kind of gets scuppered. And then it's, oh, which of the serving boys will come up the stairs first and they put something over the door and this goes on for bloody ages and it's like you're just betting over like quite an inconsequential thing and this seems to go on for like too long basically hmm. yeah it's kind of amusing to start with but yeah it just, just seems to get overly drawn out for something that's supposed we've said is kind of quick moving mm. and, and everything so i don't feel those stories typify sword and sorcery to me at all i never would have considered the dying earth books or particularly not the kugel books to be sword and sorcery well maybe you're right i mean maybe that because i don't think they do stand up to that label but i thought mm. that you know when i'm looking at the references for what sword and sorcery and what isn't or at least what, what books to read as Sword and Sorcery, Fritz Lieber and Jack Vance, and, and those names kind of come up. So I thought, you know, I should should take a look at those, as well as the fact they're on mm. Appendix N. But I guess, obviously, Appendix N isn't necessarily Sword and Sorcery, but, you know, some of it is. And finally, to wrap up, I mentioned one that I read recently. It's a, a book that I've been meaning to read for donkey's years. It's one that Ron Edwards mentioned in Sorcerer and Sword that immediately appealed to me, but I didn't get round to it until I was preparing for this. And that's Amaro by Charles R. Saunders. This is both Sword and Sorcery in the Conan mold, but also very much not, because the setting of it is also another pseudo-historical one like Robert E. Howard, but in this case, it's a pseudo-historical sub-Saharan Africa with tribal rivalries between different groups of, of people. And this one character, Imaro, who is very much an outsider within his own tribe, who I think are modelled on the Maasai, he then ends up going on a, a journey across the landscape and finding himself encountering different groups of people and getting involved with weird sorcery and, and hideous schemes. And he's got all the blood and guts and thunder of the Conan stories. But at the same time, the, the sort of pseudo-African setting of it makes it feel very fresh. And obviously that means that it's not mired in a lot of the racism that... I think Mars, some of Robert E. Howard's stuff. Yeah, is is just I think some of the most exciting action packed sword and sorcery I've read. I've only read the the first book. Saunders wrote four of them, I think. Again, they're they're sort of patchwork novels made up from short stories. If the other three are anywhere near as good as this, I'm gonna have a blast with them. So, keeping to uh, certain aspects of the genre that we've established for ourselves at least, we have found that there is maybe a bit too much to talk about in one single episode. Who would have thought? So, we're going to come back to have a look at things like sword and sorcery in film, or if you could even argue that it is sword and sorcery in film form, and also how we can use this in some of our gaming. 
because mm. I remember from reading the article that we've mentioned a few times now by Ron Edwards that yeah he wasn't exactly um, praising of attempts to put sword and sorcery on film. <laughs> He's not the only one. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to a lot of people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to us. And thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by... I was about to say by sorceress means, but no, our, our thanks are far more wholesome than that. They will not cost you your soul. Starting off with a big thanks going out to Nicholas Dreyer. And also thank you very much to Extros. So hopefully I'm pronouncing that one right for you there. And thank you very much to V Potter. And thanks to Mike Giamalva. And thank you very much to Carl Wolfwood. And thank you to Tom Erickson. Thanks to Campbell Snedden. And thank you very much to Rickard Larson. And thank you very much to the singular John. And thanks to Ian Stead. Okay. And thank you very much to Hilmar Emstrand. And thank you very much to Veston Pillsbrig. And thanks to Terry Brown. And thanks to Chris Langvin. And thank you to Anna. And thanks to Alec Tomlins. And thank you very much to Panagiotis the First. Hopefully we've got that one right too. Yes, as ever, if we have completely bollocked up any of your names, do let us know and we'll do better next time. Okay, well, we're going to leave you now and we're going to sit down and sharpen our swords and read our spell books ready for another episode. We'll see you next time. It's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Praise Crom. Blasphemous tomes.com. Mm-hmm.